The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. It's man-to-man coverage. This is the PFT PM Podcast. And now, your host, Mike Florio. Wednesday edition, January 17. Hello. Got a lot to get to today. Got two interviews in the can taped earlier in the day. Raiders coach John Gruden and former Oilers, Titans, and Rams coach Jeff Fisher. One thing I want to address before we get on to Coach Gruden, the status of Steelers offensive coordinator Todd Haley. Obviously, he's out, as many expected he would be. The fact that they hadn't given him a contract extension told us everything we needed to know. The fact that no one else was clamoring for the ability to hire Todd Haley, even though his contract was expiring, told us everything we need to know. The weird part about this, it was just a day ago that Mike Tomlin was asked about Todd Haley and other potential changes on staff, and he made it sound like he needs to engage in this extended investigation in order to determine what they need to do. They just finished a season where they're working closely together on a regular basis. Since training camp, I don't know what additional information you need. I think that probably Tomlin believed that yesterday wasn't the time to make any announcements. Maybe he needed to meet with Art Rooney, the owner of the team. Maybe it was Rooney's call. Either way, we didn't get a straight answer from Tomlin. And I mention that because he's the one who spent time trying to justify his candor with Tony Dungy regarding playing the Patriots not once but twice, three weeks before they were scheduled to play the Patriots the first time, by saying we always give honest, straightforward answers when we're asked questions. It's clear now that the answer from Tuesday from Mike Tomlin was not straightforward, was not candid. It was coach speak, aimed at stick-handling his way around a delicate situation because he didn't want to say, yeah, Todd Haley's out. We all knew Todd Haley was out. Who replaces him? I think that's going to come up later in this podcast because what I did today made a call for questions and I'm not going to try to answer all of them. I've screened them and I'm going to scroll through and try to remember which ones I thought to myself, I'll answer that one. I've narrowed it down to 10. We're going to do that later in the podcast. Trinalvo, what's next for Todd Haley? This guy comes across trouble from time to time. Lawsuits, incidents out at bars former coach of the Chiefs. It didn't end well there. I'm surprised he lasted as long as he did with the Steelers. I'm surprised he never got serious consideration for another head coaching job, but the people in the business, they talk. Whether it's truth, whether it's gossip, whether it's rumor, they talk. And Haley has been unable to position himself for another head coaching job, even though he's had the keys to one of the best offenses in the NFL. And look, I'm not going to absolve Haley of the situational football failures of Mike Tomlin. Because if you have an offensive coordinator who is buttoned up, who is committed to detail, who has a plan all the time, makes the head coach look really good. Haley made Tomlin look bad. One of the reasons Tomlin 
is now in the crosshairs of some of the limited partners who, as we reported yesterday, are planning to lobby Art Rooney to make a coaching change. Not that he's going to, but they're planning to lobby. And the fact that it got out is a shot across the bow at Tomlin. Haley's one of the reasons why. Tomlin has come off as not being a master of situational football because there's only certain situations the coach is responsible for on game day. The offensive coordinator is still the guy who calls the plays and plans the offense and has the plays loaded up and communicates with the quarterback. And to the extent there was any tension, any issue between Haley and Ben Roethlisberger, that's an impediment in those moments where the crap hits the fan and you better have a plan. And if you've got personality issues that have impeded you from having the kind of relationship where it's automatic, where everyone's on the same page, where everyone's pulling the oar in the same direction, if you're whacking each other over the head with the oar instead, makes it hard to, to finish the way that you need to. So they need to make a good offensive coordinator hire. And I don't believe Tomlin hired Todd Haley. I believe that Art Rooney hired Todd Haley, which creates a separate set of issues. They need to let Tomlin hire the next offensive coordinator. And again, we'll talk later as to who that may be. For now, there's a new head coach in Oakland. It's the same head coach that was hired in Oakland 19 years ago. He was traded, air quotes, traded at one point to the Buccaneers, won a Super Bowl there. And now after nine years in broadcasting, he's back in coaching in Oakland. Here's my conversation from earlier today with John Gruden. All right, welcome back. And as promised, a guy who was back in the NFL. The NFL is better when this guy is a coach. And after nine years in the broadcast booth, John Gruden, back where he started as a head coach with the Oakland Raiders. Coach, welcome to the program. How are you? Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Hey, it's great to talk to you. And I got a little inside information about you from your former partner, Mike Tirico. He tells me that you are an aficionado of heavy metal. So before that one big game, what's the song that you're going to listen to that gets you juiced up where you need to be? I'd probably go with Hair of the Dog by Nazareth. I'd probably go there or ACDC, TNT. One of those two songs, I'd have to flip a coin. Well, it was a great run for you in the broadcast booth. And it's great to see you back on the sideline. When did you first know that now was the time to make the jump back into coaching? You know, we had an event, Mike, uh, in Tampa. We had a Monday night game in Tampa, and there was a Ring of Honor event that that I was a part of down on the field. And I got to be around 60 or 70 of my ex-players in Tampa, and it just hit me like a brick. I just miss being around those guys. I miss being around that coaching environment and I got all I got all choked up emotionally I remember driving home that night thinking I've got to get back on the field I just want to be part of a team again and see if I can help somebody so I think that was a signature moment for me really and and coach since that happened in Tampa and I know look the Buccaneers have a coach they had a coach they still do but but was there any consideration of the Buccaneers or was it only the Raiders well I only really you know talked to the Raiders after they made a coaching change. Uh, that was the time that I decided to uh, take a shot at it. And over the years, I've really respected this Oakland organization. I've said that before. I never really wanted to leave. I was traded in the middle of the night. I was raised here uh, by the people in the black hole. I had a son here. And um, when Mark Davis called me and asked me if I would come back, I was, uh, I was ready to roll. The, the fact that the Raiders are in the process of leaving Oakland, how, how much of that was a factor for you that if I'm going to do it now, I, I'm never going to get a chance to do it in Oakland if I don't go in 2018 or at the latest 2019? Was that a factor that nudged you in that direction? 
Yeah, it really was. It really was. Um, I love football. You know me. The one thing no one has argued about with me is I love football, love the NFL. And um, I'm really emotional about that. Uh, these these people in Oakland, they, they supported me as an unknown nobody. I mean, you know, when I was 34 years old, they got behind me. They got behind the Raider uh, football team, and they helped me. And uh, I feel the urgency to come back here and, and do everything within my power to try to deliver the best possible football for them over the next two years before they move to Vegas. It, it was very important. How close did you come to returning to coaching at any point before this year? I don't know. Uh, I had my feet in the water. I just had a hard time diving in. And as you know, if you're going to do this, you got to be all in. I mean, you got to be all in. You have to be uh, on a constant mission uh, to acquire knowledge and personnel. Uh, what's a better way of running the football? What's a better drill we can run? Who's the best offensive line coach we can get? You have to be on a constant 365 days a year mission. And, and I wasn't ready to do that. Uh, but it dawned on me that night in Florida, and uh, here I am. I haven't had much sleep, but uh, I'm, I'm eight or nine days into it, and I'm, I'm just having a blast. And, you know, it worked out being the perfect job for you to have to prepare yourself to come back. When you started into broadcasting, do you have any idea how valuable it was going to be to be involved in the game, to be going to different facilities, seeing different teams practice, getting to know more people, how useful that would be when the time did come to return to coaching? No, I really didn't. I thought I'd go right back into coaching, uh, but I learned to really like it. And, you know, I remember when I was a coach for the Raiders in 1998, I was always wondering, what was Marty Schottenheimer doing uh, on the practice field? I wonder what their weight room looks like. I wonder what their practice facilities like. I wonder what's going on in Kansas City. And over the last several years, I've had a chance to sit down and talk to the head coach, see their training room, see their facilities, watch them practice. So it has made me uh, certainly a lot more well-rounded. I've had a chance to see things I never got to see before when I was a head coach. Give me one area of the job that you think is going to be more difficult for you now than it was when you last coached. Well, I think it's extremely difficult now with this collective bargaining agreement. I'm, I'm, I'm ready to roll. I'm ready to talk some football. I can't even be around these players. These players are locked out of the building for a while. No communication, none whatsoever. And when you look at how we practice in the spring, it's completely different. There's not nearly as many reps. There's not nearly as much time spent with your players. And training camp is different. Uh, obviously, the rules are different, but I think it all starts there. You've got to really be efficient with your time on the field and in the meeting room. You can't waste a second. And that's something that's, that's really different than what it was in the past. You know, and it's one thing to limit the amount of reps guys have on the field. You want to preserve their bodies. I get all that. But the idea of not letting a guy who wants to show up and watch film and make himself better and use his free time interacting with his coach instead of having to set up some separate arrangement where he finds someone else to do that with, that just makes no sense to me. What do you think you can do as a practical matter to change it back to allow you to have Derek Carr in and other offensive players in and basically any player who wants to come in, hang out, watch film, and learn the game better to be able to do it? Well, complain a lot. You know, that's what I've been doing about the CBA. Complain and, and raise attention to it. Uh, certainly, that's all you can do. And you can waste a lot of time, I think, Mike, doing that. I think the great teams, the great coaches just adapt to it. 
Uh, and until they vote again on the CBA, there's not much you can do about it. But, you know, I watch what Bill Belichick has done and adapting to whatever the rules may be. Look, there's no continuity anymore. You look at the teams, how many coaches change positions every year, quarterbacks, wide receivers. Everybody uh, is changing so much with their roster and their coaching staff. And now you have the limitations on the CBA. How can you possibly uh, execute football like you once did? You've got to adapt. You've got to be very creative, and, and you really got to take advantage of the time that you do have. I know you take full advantage of your time by way of preparing to coach a team and coming up with plays and studying film. Do you have any temptation to try to get involved on the competition committee to maybe guide some of these changes that you think are necessary to allow all coaches to do their jobs better? Uh, I don't know. I, I think I've got enough jobs uh, right now. You know, I, I got a lot of respect for the people that do that. Uh, a lot of people are, are willing to sacrifice their time for what is good in the game. But I've said it as a broadcaster. You and I have never talked that much, Mike, but I don't like the way instant replay has taken over games. I think we've we've overanalyzed things a little bit. We're officiating games at super slow-mo speed. Uh, we have a guy deciding the outcome of games who's not even at the game. Uh, I think there's a lot of issues, and, and you know, instead of fighting those issues right now, I've got to get reacclimated to being a head coach, getting to know my players, and getting to know this draft class, and certainly the free agent class, and trying to do what I can control. But uh, I think coaches that have a lot of experience in the league, those are the guys that should be on the competition committee because they might have a little bit more time to do it. Hey, if somebody from 345 Park Avenue called you up and said, John Gruden, what would you do to fix replay? What would you say? <laughs> I'd say we need to go back. No more microphones on officials. Let the guys on the field call the game as they see it. Um, I know every call is impactful, uh, but if we're just going to challenge everything and, and look, pass interference is an issue right now. I, I still, I'm 54 years old, Mike. I still don't know what a catch is. Is that unbelievable? I don't think anybody does. And, and, well, and, <laughs> how can that be? I don't know how that can be. With all the technology, we have full-time officials. We have officials in the in the booth. We have officials in New York, and we're still struggling to to reach a common ground on that. It'll be fun to see what happens in the off season. But believe me, I got a lot bigger things on my plate than that. Give me an area where you think you'll be better now than you were before because of the nine years, not just simply because you've had access to different information, seeing different coaches, but just the way you've grown, the way you've changed over the last nine years. How will that make you better as a coach? Well, I think, uh, you know, I've had a chance to get exposure to so many different things, not just systems of offense, but being around defensive coaches, uh, seeing facilities, things that we could possibly add to our building to help our players improve. Um, it's just a better, much bigger picture of the operation. You know, you got to get more into the nuances of special teams. You know, how you cover a kick, uh, how you conduct your roster, how you put your roster together, how important the 53rd and 52nd man are, and how critical your practice squad is. Because these men have to play. Uh, there's, a, there's an incredible, uh, I think, different viewpoint that I have now from a big picture standpoint just because of the things I've been able to see and the time I've had to think about it. One thing that, that uh, I noticed during your press conference last week when you were reintroduced as the coach of the team, your nine years in broadcasting, I think, has made you an even better communicator 
and and uh, how does that actually help you? It's one thing to be at a press conference, but I feel like in the locker room, it's easier to command the locker room. It's easier to talk to guys one on one once you've had that nine years of experience in talking in you know fairly tight sound bites. You got to make your point quickly. Do you feel that you're a much better communicator now than you were the last time you coached? Well, I think so. I hope so. That's been my life the last eight or nine years, and uh, I've had some decent moments. I've had some bad moments that are well documented. But you know, they used to call me Chucky. We know how he communicates. He wasn't he wasn't a very uh, good communicator. He was a little too harsh. So I think uh, <laughs> I think I have uh, learned how to you know, just just control my emotions a little bit better. Honestly, I hope to be a little bit more mature than I was back in '98, '99. But uh, when the whistle blows. Yeah, that might not be the case. We'll have to wait and see. Well, and I'm glad you mentioned Chucky because when you first took the job at ESPN, I know I expected Chucky in the broadcast booth, and I was looking forward to it because I, I like that raw. I like that edge. I like that harsh criticism because it makes it more interesting. We never did quite see Chucky. Is that the moment where you realize that that modulation, that that good and bad are are important, and it can't just be the biting criticism? You have to balance it out? Well, I think some people really don't know me. You know, a lot of people that, you know, just think I'm some raging lunatic that cusses and screams and goes wild down there. They really don't know me. I get excited about I'm – I'm a great cheerleader, Mike. I get excited about execution. And when you get in a Monday Night Football broadcast – booth whoever takes my job they'll they'll have a talk back button and you can talk to the people in the truck and um, I look forward to showcasing the good things that players did in a game I remember hitting the talk back button and give me the ISO on Vince Wilfork because that might have been my only time to talk about Wilfork now it was a one yard loss I could have said oh that's a terrible play call what a lousy run by the back but Vince Wilfork he just crushed the guard separated, made a one-yard tackle for loss. That might be my only chance to get excited about Will Fork in the broadcast. So, you know, I, ch- I chose to uh, showcase the players. It's Monday Night Football. Uh, that's just, uh, if I ever go back and do it again, I'm going to try to look at the game that way instead of being another critic in another town on another night. What, was that a choice you made, Coach, or was that something that that's one of the producers at ESPN suggested you do? No, no, that was a choice I made. I uh, My mom was a school teacher. My dad was a coach. And uh, I used to start the meetings all the time, even as a head coach, for the most part, with the great things we did. I mean, look at this route. Look at this throw. Look at this block. You know, you, you got to really uh, get excited about football. You just can't go in there and, and – uh, you know, rip guys every single day, but uh, I was critical at times. You know, I had my moments where I was critical, but uh, look, I did the best I could, and I had a lot of fun doing that for a long time. Chris Sims has shared a few of those moments on PFT Live from his time with you. What what stands out when, when you hear Chris Sims' name? What's the, the biggest memory that comes to mind? Well, we won 11 games in a division title with him as our quarterback, and that's as proud as I've been as a coach. And uh, I don't think he had the ability that Aaron Rodgers had. Maybe I wouldn't have screamed at him as much as if he was as good as A-Rod <laughs> or Drew Brees. You know, I mean, uh, you know, I feel really proud about what we accomplished. Uh, I really do. I pushed him hard because I think he needed to be pushed. Uh, you know, I didn't push Gannon as hard as I did Chris. He was a young quarterback who I think had a lot of talent and um, – I'm really proud of what he accomplished in uh, winning us a division championship. 
And, you know, he talks about how he was pushed, but he also realized that you were doing it for the greater good to make him better, and he understands it now. I don't know how he dealt with it at the time, but he definitely understands it now. And now you're walking into a situation where you have Derek Carr. Are you going to? How do you approach him? Are you going to coach him hard? Are you going to balance it out? What's your strategy for getting the most out of him? Well, I'm going to tread uh, water here for a while while I get to know him. You know, I think you got to get to know these guys before you start you making decisions how you're going to try to reach them. Uh, and we talked about it earlier, Mike. You know, one of the downsides of this collective bargaining thing is you can't even spend time with these guys and get to know them. So I'm not going to start screaming and yelling or patting people on the back or telling you how I can deal with them until I have a chance to be around them a little bit. But I've met Derek at the QB camp show that we did earlier. There's not a better person. He's a man of faith. He's a great leader. He's a great communicator. He's passionate about playing. I believe he has as good arm talent as there is in the NFL. We just have to get some continuity in this organization. I think I'm the 10th head coach in 15 years. And we've had one winning season in 15 seasons. We've got to get some continuity where we can help him, I think, get the reps, constant reps. Repetition is the mother of learning. Stay in the same system for a while. I think he's got a chance to be great. And if he's not, it'll be my fault. You mentioned the QB camp. It was a fascinating series to see the interaction between you and the incoming rookies. Give me the one name that stands out as the guy who ended up being the most different from what you thought he was going to be. Man, that's a good question. Uh, The most different? Uh, I I can't really – oh, Manziel, Johnny Manziel was the most disappointing just because of the outcome of his career. I really – and I got criticized a lot for trying to bump him up during the draft. Uh, I really thought he had a just an incredible playing style that that, that would service him well. Uh, I was really shocked at uh, his downfall and, and demise from football, but hopefully he can he can come back and play somewhere someday because I sure enjoyed being around him and watching him. Well, Coach, I've enjoyed talking to you, and it was a lot of great insight into how things are going to go forward for you. We wish you all the best back with the Oakland Raiders, and we hope to have a chance to talk to you again down the road. Yeah, same here, Mike. Thanks for having me on, and uh, talk to you soon. Thanks again to Coach Gruden for some of his time. A guy who is very anxious to start grinding. A guy who is very anxious to get with his players. A guy who is ready and willing to put in the hours. And he is putting in the hours, but my goodness, if you can't talk to your players, even if your players want to come talk to you, there's something wrong with that rule. Now, the problem is some coaches will abuse it. Some coaches will put pressure on players who may not choose to show up and study film and get into the playbook. Players who choose to take full advantage of the downtime that they have after getting through a tough season. Some people just need a day or two. I mean, I know for me, and it's not nearly the same grind. It's not physically the same grind as what players go through and what coaches go through. But the season, it's nonstop. It's grinded out every day, travel on Saturday, Long, long day on Sunday, travel back on Monday after doing the show, and keep going. And after 17 weeks of it, you're like, thank God we're at the finish line. I need a break. And then after a day or two out of that routine, it's like, yeah, I'm good. Let's start it up again. And a lot of players and a lot of coaches feel that way. They don't know what to do with themselves when they get out of that mode. And Gruden's in that mode all year long, and players should be allowed to choose to be in that mode. The problem is that... Even if players aren't choosing to be in that mode, 
they're going to have to choose to be in that mode because coaches are going to gravitate toward the guys who voluntarily show up. That's that's all voluntary workouts. If you don't volunteer to show up at some point, they're going to volunteer you for unemployment. But I still think these are grown men. This is the life they've chosen. And it's not like it used to be where you come home at the end of the season, you go sell cars or do whatever it is as your separate job. And then go back in July. Guys stay in shape year-round. And I think they also should be allowed if they want to. And why wouldn't they want to? Study film. Get in the playbook. Make preparations for the next season. It's going to help them do their job better. It's not going to help them do their job worse. It's going to help them do their job better. All right. Next guest on today's PFTPM. A guy who is available his name has not come up publicly. Now, maybe it's come up privately. That's an issue that we'll be discussing. Here's the conversation taped earlier this afternoon with former Titans, Oilers, and Rams head coach Jeff Fisher. Welcome back. And joining us now, a man who has coached 350 regular season and postseason games with the Oilers, the Titans, and the St. Louis slash L.A. Rams. He is Jeff Fisher. Coach, welcome to the program. Hey, Mike. It's great to be a part of it. Thank you. Well, it's great to talk to you. You know, I thought about you on Sunday after that Vikings play because you had a moment like that back in the 1999 playoffs, the Music City Miracle. Your team pulls off what was one of the most thrilling postseason moments of all time, but that wasn't the end of the journey. Still more games to be played, and the challenge right now for the Vikings is to forget about the last game, focus on the next one. How did you go about getting your players to just shut down, set aside the way that they got past the Bills in that game and focus on what was next? Well, you know, it's interesting about that is uh, when you're when you're you have a team that hasn't been to playoffs in a number of years. I think if you do things right uh, during the week prior to the game and let them know this is this game's not going to be easy. You know, it's going to be hard. The first one's always the hardest, but you just got to find a way to get through that first game and then things settle down. And certainly they settled down for us after that moment. It was a a historic moment. We put things back into perspective the next day and then went on to the next challenge. So it's behind them. There's no doubt. The way Mike does his his business up there and that staff, they're going to have it all behind them. And, you know, they're well into game plan preparation right now, you know, against the Eagles. And, of course, that season you took the Titans all the way to the Super Bowl with one of the best finishes of all time, that one yard. Do do you still – I mean, it's 18 years later. Do you still have images and visions from time to time of that last lunge to the goal line? You know, it's funny. You know, a few years ago, you know, somebody wanted to go back and and talk about that game, and I really hadn't looked at it until then. So a good 10, 12 years ago went by before I watched the TV copy. I had to go back in and watch the – the game tape, but yeah, I mean, it's uh, one of those memories that will last a lifetime knowing that we got that close and uh, we worked so hard and, you know, you bounce back and you, you, you try to get back there again. And, and we got close again, several times, got the championship game, but never got back. But, you know, it was a, it was a great run back then in 99 with a lot of great players who I've remained very close with. Now that, play that we saw on Sunday in Minnesota, the Vikings pulling off the victory with the 61-yard catch and run. A lot of criticism of Marcus Williams for the way he played it. The former defensive coordinator in you, 
when you see that play, when you see not just Williams' involvement, but the alignment of the defense, any thoughts, any ideas on maybe how they should have done things differently to keep that from happening? Well, first, let's say it's real easy for us to to sit back on Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays and go through the woulda, shoulda, couldas. But, you know, when you're making decisions at that point of the game, it they're not easy. It's like, you know, you liken it to that air traffic controller, you know. It's high pressure for that moment. And, you know, what, you know what's obvious to me is that, you know, the defense is coached. Believe me, they've been through the scenarios. Probably nothing specific to, to that play, but close to it. And the secondary is told the only thing that can beat you is a pass interference call. So you can't have a pass interference call here, especially in a long pass, because even if time runs out, you know, the game extends. And so avoid pass, pass interference at all costs and tackle the you know, receiver in bounds if he catches the ball. So, you know, it's hard to say. I mean, I think we all can sit there on a, on a dry erase board right now and draw up a better – situation where whether it's you're rushing two or rushing three or deploying the secondary differently but you know this was this was the saints approach they put themselves in position and a lot of things had to happen you know you know the defender ducks to avoid pass interference in my opinion and then in so doing he takes out with friendly fire his teammate who probably makes the tackle there so a lot of things happen in the play and you know you you go on i just hate to second guess it but so many things had to go right in that particular play and what an exciting moment for the national football league and and the minnesota vikings the one thing that struck me as the most significant of that defensive alignment the respect that the saints had for adam thielen because they had both marshawn Lattimore on him and a safety over the top shaded to that side of the field you swing that guy to the middle Maybe he ends up providing the last line of defense and getting to Stephon Diggs or either running him out of bounds. But they were so scared of Thielen, they took two of the guys they had on the field and devoted them to him. We, we haven't seen Thielen generate that kind of respect so far. I think that game on Sunday was the clearest example yet that Thielen is starting to get the kind of respect, the kind of fear from defenses that maybe he should. You know, I, I agree with his production this year and the relationship that he and case have and the big plays that they've made throughout the season. But I have to disagree with the, the fact that they were concerned with him in that particular play. I think you're defending the situation is what you're doing, regardless of how the offense is deployed and who's there. Keep the ball in bounds. Don't let the ball get over top. Make the tackle games over. So, you know, I think we can look at it and say, you know, it's pretty much a traditional uh, or, or a traditionally modified too deep concept where you're trying to keep the ball in bounds as opposed to uh, anything with respect to specific receivers and personnel. The other, you know, options that that you have is go three deep and still bang the guys across the board and rush three or rush two, as we said. But again. I'm never going to be one to second guess. There's a lot of things that go into that decision, and there are a lot more things that went into this, the success of this play than just the deployment of the defense. I was trying to find a silver lining for the Saints, but you know what? They didn't have enough guys on the side of the field with Jarius Wright and Stephon Diggs. That's the bottom line because it was essentially two-on-two without 
that safety help over the top, and Marcus Williams was kind of left on an island. Now, the good things that went well for the Vikings, not just the catch and run by Stephon Diggs, who easily could have stumbled to the ground, the throw by Case Keenum, a guy that you had with the Rams for a couple of years. How surprised are you by the performance we've seen from Keenum this year? Not just what we saw on Sunday, but all year long from the moment he replaced Sam Bradford in Week 2. You know, not surprised whatsoever. I think you know, as it's the case also with Nick. You know, um, both, credit goes to both the organizations from the standpoint of realizing how important it is to have a quality backup quarterback. And both Nick and Case entered the same scenario at the start of the season. They were backups. They both are experienced. They've won games. They've played tough opponents. They've won games against good opponents. And so uh, I'm not surprised at all. Now, you know, when we had Case at the end of uh, 2015, he finished 3-1. and one. His only loss in those last four games was an overtime loss against the 49ers. We missed a kick in overtime where he's 4-0, and oh, starts out 16-3-1. So I'm not surprised whatsoever. I mean, I'm, I'm a Case Keenum fan, as I am a Nick Foles fan, and, and uh, Case's his success this year – is not surprising to me. And Case will be the first one, and I'd all, I think we all have to recognize that this is a team success. Um, Case is playing along with an outstanding defense that's very, very productive and hard to attack. And so this team's success was a, a team success. And Case, you know, Case is one of those guys that's not going to make the catastrophic mistake. You know, he knows he knows situations. He understands. He's really easy going confident great in the huddle and the players trust him and and i i can say this about case on the practice field you know or in the morning for that matter and it relates to, to nick as well both of these guys park in the parking lot at the facility and run into the building because they're so excited to come to work and there's there's energy and and they bring it and and that's why they're both playing the championship game right now the thing that impresses me the most about Keenum, his ability to buy time with his legs and not lose sight of who may be getting open downfield. We see him move, we see him run, we see him slide out of the pocket, and then we see him stop, square up, and find a guy who's wide open. But the one knock I have on him, we saw a couple of ugly interceptions against Washington, and he did have that kind of chuck the ball up in the air moment against the Saints where Marcus Williams picked it off and it opened the door to the Saints scoring their second touchdown. How how do you force him into that lapse if you're the Philadelphia Eagles? Well, I I think Case is going to be careful. For the most part, Case is you know he's very very smart for for a guy with his height, which is not ideal at the quarterback position. He's got those rare the rare skills to move in the pocket, as you say, and he trusts his receivers. He'll put the ball at a point where they can, only they can make the catch and. Interceptions come. You know, that's part of playing the position. The great ones have thrown them. And, you know, Case is one guy that I would say that if if there's going to be a problem this week, it's because the ball was tipped at the line of scrimmage. I don't think Case is going to give the ball away. And and that's the same same as it relates to Nick. I think both quarterbacks are going to rely on their running games. They're going to rely on the good defenses. And I think this, this game you know, is going to be played in that 13 to 10 range because of the strengths of the defenses and the way the offenses are going to approach it. I don't think you're going to see a real high-scoring game this week. But back to Case, Case is going to try to make the plays. 
Uh, you know, I've never met a player that makes, or nor a coach that makes a mistake on pur- purpose. Case understands how to minimize mistakes at that position. When you went to the Rams in 2012, the starting quarterback there was Sam Bradford. All indications were that he was on track to become a franchise quarterback. Injuries affected that. But now, here he is. Played week one against the Saints, had a career game. He's healthy. He'll likely be the number two guy behind Case Keenum. If you were Mike Zimmer, how long of a leash would you have on Keenum when you have a healthy Sam Bradford and you know what Bradford can do when he's out there on the field flinging the ball around? Well, I mean, I don't think there's a consideration there. Um, you know, Sam, we all know what Sam can do, uh, but I, I think you, the, the, if you're going to take anything into consideration, it's the defense that they're playing against. This is a solid, solid defense, well-coached, and this, the defense has been good all year, and I don't think you can just even go in this game thinking you got a leash on Case. Case got you there. There's no doubt about it. I think they're very, very fortunate to not only, you know, to have Sam there as a two if he is this week and, and Teddy there and they they got a good situation. They got the decisions to make in the future, but I I don't think it's fair to put a leash on Case right now. Uh, I think you let Case go out and do his thing and rely on the team effort against the Eagles. When you were in your final year with the Rams, you guys both did hard knocks and the all or nothing series. Which one was a bigger distraction for the team? You know, Mike, uh, I, you know, you have to say hard knocks um, going in, but after two or three days, they, you know, they like they disappeared. They were there. They're part of what you're doing, and um, and then there was just a continuation. So it was easy initially. You know, initially there was some transition and getting used to, but you know, it started in our case with the Rams it started well earlier because they they were around because it was the first time in you know NFL history where uh, hard knocks or the NFL could fully document the move no one had done that before so they started back in the spring so really wasn't a distraction whatsoever You've gone through the move twice, both with the Oilers when they became the Titans and with the Rams when they moved to L.A. How big of a deal is that, presiding over an NFL franchise, when it makes a move from one state to the next? How do you manage to do the things you're supposed to do with all these other issues that are coming into play when the franchise picks up and leaves? Well, the relocation is not an easy event. You can ask those, those, those others that have done it. I mean, look at the Chargers. They went from San Diego to Orange County an hour and a half, and they start off 0-4. So it's not an easy thing. There's a lot of other things that that are involved in it. Um, But, uh, you know, there was something that I couldn't avoid that we had to deal with. But, um, you know, there there are a lot of distractions, um, specifically as it relates to moving out from St. Louis to L.A., you know, you get, you're dealing with all kinds of things, different moves, no facilities, temporary facilities, moving from here to there, no place to train during the summer and all those things. And I think they, you know, they catch up with you, but no excuses. It's relocating the franchise is not an easy thing to do. And the next one on the schedule is Oakland. And we'll, you know, just hope that Coach Gruden and, and those guys have a plan because, um, you know, if you're not prepared for it, it can catch up with you. 
Would that be your biggest advice for Gruden? Just have a plan for every single thing that you're going to do? Because it's going to drive him crazy. Because we know how much time he wants to spend on football, and there's going to be times where he's spending his time on anything but football as they're actually executing the move. Well, there's, you know, the, the, the people in the organization, that, that's their responsibility. But anytime there's, there's difficulties or there's issues that come up, they always come across the head coach's desk. And so the head coach has to take time out to deal with them. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, this, the Oakland's, Oakland's success is going to be largely determined by, you know, Oakland's front office and their football ops department and everybody that's on the other end of the move. And, uh, you know, hopefully John will be able to just coach football, which he's good at. You said in the final episode of All or Nothing that you want to get back on the sidelines. Is that still the case? Yeah, I um, I have every interest. Um, I, I love the game. I've got respect for the game. I've been very blessed to have done it so long. Uh, and I'm, you know, I'm looking forward to that, that next opportunity. So, um, you know, I appreciate that. Uh, we're, you know, obviously there's changes here and uh, going, going on as we speak. And uh, people have people in mind, and that's all well and good. But uh, I'm going to keep pursuing uh, my dream, and that's to get closer than one yard from the, from the goal line in the Super Bowl. <laughs> have you gotten any specific interest this time around in this cycle? There's been interest, yes, I'll say that. There has been interest, and, um, you know, I've been kind of laying back and just kind of wait, waiting and watching, but uh, there has some, been some interest expressed, yes. How, how do you reconcile, just to, if you can step back from being on the inside, you're looking at the guy, a guy that's got 350 career games under his belt, and teams are still pushing toward unproven coordinators, guys who may or may not ever learn the difference between coordinator and head coach, kind of rolling the dice and hoping. And I don't want to name names, but we know who they are. Um, as, as an owner, as anyone who pays attention to the game, how do you go with the guy who's never done it before and just hope he figures it out? Because the NFL history is littered with guys who just can't figure it out when they become the head coach. Well, I mean, it's up to each and every individual owner and general manager to make a decision what they think is in the best interest of the club. And I cite a great example. Um, you know, I thought the Rams did a great job uh, in hiring Sean McVay. And what a, what a great, um, absolute, I mean, that's a historical job he did uh, this past year with the Rams. And, and so I think people are looking for that next Sean McVay, and that's all well and good. Um, so, you know, but again, to answer your question, it's really up to the to, to ownership and to, to the GMs, uh, and they're all different. Some are, you know, in their second and third years, and some have, you know, 20, 30 years experience at the position. And so they know what their, quote, vision is, and they're looking for the right guy to fill it. To, to invoke the phrase all or nothing one last time with a twist, is it head coach or nothing, or would you be willing to go back and be a coordinator again? Well, I, you know, it's head coach or nothing. I mean, I, you know, I, I love the game, uh, but I, you know, I, I believe that uh, you've got a lot of tremendously talented assistants to handle those responsibilities. And I've been doing it so long and handled so many different things over the year. I just feel like I'm better suited at the, you know, at the head coaching position. 
Well, the one wish I have for you is that if you become an NFL head coach again, it is not with a team that moves. That's well, not something you. you should be able to say you did three times. Well, we talked in a previous conversation, Mike, and, and I'll remind you, you know, two different teams, five different cities and six different stadiums over my career. That, that'll never be done again. And I'd like to just go into one place and, and uh, have fun and win football games if given the opportunity. Well, we hope you get the opportunity. Appreciate some of your time. Look forward to talking to you again down the road. All right. Likewise. Enjoy the weekend. It's going to be great. All right. Thank you, pal. All right. This is a weird kind of PFTPM podcast for me because I've already spent time talking to the guests. I don't feel like it's part of the podcast, but it is from your perspective. So for me, I'm just getting started. For you, you're probably saying, let's wrap this stuff up. So let's wrap it up by answering some of the questions. Ten best questions that I noticed when I scrolled through them right before we started taping. Now I only have to remember which ones are the ones I decided I wanted to answer. I probably should have taken better notes. At Trent Raleigh. And I love it when I see in these questions little things that come up during PFT Live because it warms my heart to know that people are actually listening to what we put out for three hours every morning from 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. Because there is a three to four minute moment every morning when I roll out of bed. I ask myself, why the hell am I doing this? Now, it goes away, but when I see that people enjoy it, when I see that people remember the dumb little things that Stats and I talk about and quote them back, it just makes me feel good. So I appreciate that. So Trent Raleigh asks, are you currently accepting applications for an assistant producer? Hashtag don't worry stats. That's a reference to a conversation that came up recently as related to some sort of hypothetical. Oh, it was the Eagles. That the Eagles have John DeFilippo at quarterback's coach. They have Frank Reich at offensive coordinator. And stats was expressing some sort of confusion as to why the Eagles would want to nudge Reich out and promote DeFilippo. And I said, look, if there was an assistant producer on PFT Live and I could tell that that person was better than the producer, I would try to find a way to nudge out the producer and make the assistant producer the producer because it's all about producing. He didn't like that response. Another one from at Trent Raleigh, since I liked his first one. You love football, but how do you feel about soccer? Any favorite teams, domestic or abroad? You know, when... When, when I first got a PS4, we moved into the house that I live in now four years ago. And, and uh, it, it was more conducive to having like a PS4 where you have multiple people playing. We got a, a room with a decent-sized screen that, that we inherited when we bought the house. And so we got the FIFA game, and I'd never played it before, and I fell in love with it. And I played it all the time, and it drove me crazy. And I became a fan of Real Madrid from playing that game. And I started paying more attention to soccer. But then I finally rediscovered Madden over the past couple of years, and I've gotten away from the FIFA game. And in turn, I've gotten away from from following soccer. We actually went to FedEx Field to watch Argentina play another team from one of the Latin American countries, Central American countries. I can't remember who it was. All I remember is we were pissed off because Messi didn't play. He was there, but he didn't play. That was an experience. And at one point, I wanted to go to Europe to watch a soccer match over there. But now that Madden is front and center for the gaming aspect of my life, that that sliver when I work out and uh, 
try to properly manipulate the joysticks and the buttons while I'm, you know, sweats running down in my eyes and whatnot. I've gotten away from soccer, but I did have a stretch of a couple of years where I was into it. Maybe one of these years. I think the other thing too, the FIFA game is too much of a simulation now, so it's even more frustrating than it was. So I've gotten away from it altogether. So. Thank you for asking. Next question, as we scroll down, and I try to remember which ones I liked enough to answer. I'm getting warm, I believe. I think the question is from at edarm55. Assuming the Vikings make it to the Super Bowl, will they be able to treat it as a home game? For example, asking the crowd to get loud on third down, etc. Shereen Williams has a post at PFT with some of the rules that are going to apply to the Vikings. Now, they've already received the dispensation to use the home locker room and the home sideline, even though they're not the home team. And they would train in their own facility, even though they're not the home team, and the home team otherwise would be training in the Vikings facility, and the Vikings would be training in the University of Minnesota facility. And the thing is, and this was smart by the Vikings, you push for this early enough that no one's even in position to complain, because no one knows who's going to be in the Super Bowl. Who from the AFC is going to complain? Then you look really presumptuous. If the Patriots had said, well, we're opposed to that. Well, hey, Patriots, you got to win a couple of games before that's relevant. So whoever from the Vikings decided we're going to ask early, smart move. And I have a feeling there's going to be some salty Patriots and or Jaguars, employees, players, fans, etc., when they realize, hey, the first team to play in a Super Bowl that its stadium is hosting, even though that team isn't the home team, they're getting some some extra consideration, but I doubt they're going to be blowing the Galler horn. I doubt that they're going to be telling the Vikings faithful to get loud. The NFL runs everything at the Super Bowl. The real question is how many Vikings fans are going to be in that stadium? You know, usually when you go to a Super Bowl, you do get a sense that there's a little more of one than the other. Now the question becomes, can the locals get access to tickets? The allotments are equal between the two teams who make it. But secondary market, and really, I look at it this way. Here's how I would justify it. Number one, when am I ever going to go to a Super Bowl again in my life? Number two, I can take all the money that I would have spent on travel and hotel and pump that into what I'm willing to pay for a ticket. So I'm willing to spend more than maybe somebody else from out of town would spend because I'm staying at my own house. I'm not paying that ridiculously overpriced, oh my God, the way they put the thumb on the scale. I mean, my room for the week is covered by NBC, and thank you very much for that, NBC. But we got some family members that are coming up to the game, regardless of who's in it. And, man, one of the hotel rooms, oh, my God, sell a car in order to get a hotel for three days. There should be a law against that. I don't want to alienate our hosts in Minnesota, but it happens in every NFL city during the Super Bowl. And it really is criminal. I know it doesn't violate any law, but it feels criminal to take a room rate and essentially quadruple it on the three nights wrapped around the Super Bowl. They should just be glad the hotel's full. They're siphoning off the profit that goes with having the Super Bowl in town. And some of that money is what should fund the bid and fund the stadium. That's how they justify the use of public money. I'll tell you what. These organizations, these hotels that are putting their thumb on the scale and making a windfall, they should be the ones who are financing the stadium. Anyway, enough of that. I wouldn't care if I wasn't the one who was paying ridiculous amounts of money for a hotel room for three nights, all because it happens to be the Super Bowl weekend.
But the Vikings won't be the home team, but as a practical matter, they will be the home team. And I think Vikings fans will overrun that stadium. It won't be like it was on Sunday, but it's going to be the closest thing any team has ever had to a home field advantage. And here's the thing. The Vikings had better win that game if they make it because the Super Bowls they lost, I don't think they ever returned to those stadiums again. Rice Stadium in Super Bowl VIII, Tulane Stadium in Super Bowl IX, the Rose Bowl in Super Bowl XI. They never had to go back to the site of the ultimate embarrassment and disappointment. They lose this one. Ten games next year, two regular season or eight regular season and two preseason and maybe postseason. You keep showing up and showing up and showing up in the same place where you had your heart ripped out. And maybe that's extra motivation to win the game. All right. Let's see what else we got down here at the Impact 99. He asked, and and I love talking about myself and acting like I don't want to talk about myself. He wants to know my best 5K race time. I I actually did a decent amount of running back when I was young and able to run. I think my best 5K, now my best 10K was 38.40. I think my best 5K was 18.45. I think. I got it written down somewhere in the archives. And... Listen, I can't run now because of that. A lot of miles, a lot of hours, pounding on asphalt, and any time I try to run now, my knees instantly swell up, and when I move my knees, even when I haven't been running, I can feel it right now. It's like a bag of broken glass, both knees. You can just feel it crunch and crumple, and apparently it's some sort of lingering tendonitis, but I don't want to get it fixed. It may be some floating meniscus. I don't know. I don't want to run again. I ride a bike, and it doesn't bother me, but... To answer the question, once upon a time, yes, yes, I I actually was semi-athletic. Although, how athletic does anyone have to be to run in a straight line, right? You have to be pretty damn awkward and clumsy not to run in a straight line. And the best thing about distance running, no matter who you are, the more you do it, the better you get at it. Now, you reach a certain maximum, but... It's all about repetition. It's all about showing up. It's all about discipline. It's all about stamina. And I think a lot of the things you learn about yourself when you overcome those barriers and you find yourself fighting through those moments where you're just exhausted and you have a pain in your side and a pain in your back and a pain in your foot and a pain in your ass, you you can, I think, carry those over to professional achievements to educational pursuits that determination that gets you through that that determination carries over to other things that you do and I think one of the reasons I've had a decent amount of success in this business is because of the years I spent pounding the pavement literally and pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing it just gives you that desire and that ability to push and push and push and push and everything else that you do. All right, enough talking about myself, but to the extent that that may help you. See, I can justify making it all about me if there's a way that I can wedge logically what I just said into saying that's for your benefit as well. I don't know that I did a very good job of that. Next question, another one from At the Impact 99. Whose coaching career would you rather have so far, John Gruden or Jeff Fisher? I would probably go Gruden because, number one, he won a Super Bowl. And number two, part of the coaching career includes the nine-year broadcasting career, right? On Monday Night Football, which I think is going to make him a better coach now that he's back again. And also, look, you heard Fisher talking about what it's like to move. Now, Gruden, maybe in a few years, it'll be a wash. 
because Gruden's going to have to go through a move, and I think that move is going to drive him crazy because you can't focus on football the way you'd like to when everything is getting packed up and relocated. And he needs to have a damn good plan in place, and he needs to tell people this needs to be set up in a way that minimizes any disruption to my schedule. When we changed houses four years ago, it was right around the draft. And I think that I think I think my wife did a great job of minimizing the distraction and the impact. I gotta give her credit for that. Because, you know, when you change house, I mean you got a lot of shit that's gotta be packed up and moved and disruptions and distractions and I was able to stay focused on everything I needed to do. And I think that's what Gruden he needs a staff in place that allows him to do. He may want to start working at home and let others deal with everything that needs to happen. At some point, he's going to have to move from California to Nevada. All right, next question. At Show, who's the top candidate for Todd Haley's job? Well, there are multiple reports that Randy Fickner, the quarterback's coach, is the leading candidate for the job, but they're all, they're all hedgy. They all say expected to be or likely will be. No one has reported that he's getting the job. And the wrinkle that I posted this afternoon on PFT, Mike Munchak, the offensive line coach who withdrew his name for consideration with the Cardinals, won't have a second interview. I'm told the Cardinals are very interested in him. So if he's choosing not to sit for a job that maybe he could have gotten now, it's possible something's scaring him away from coaching the Cardinals. Maybe not having a quarterback will do that. If you're going to go back and coach again, you better make damn sure that you're set up for success. Because once you've been fired by the Titans, you go back and you fail with the Cardinals, you get fired by them, you're never getting a third chance. But maybe his thinking is he's got a chance to be the offensive coordinator in Pittsburgh, step up from the offensive line coach, and that that is a spot that should be producing a head coach. That's the one thing that is very curious, and I think a lot of it has to do with Haley that Todd Haley never parlayed that spot as offensive coordinator of that offense into consideration for another head coaching job. And maybe Munchak can pull that off if he ends up being in that gig. I think it makes it a very desirable job because of what it could become for whoever has it. So it looks like Fickner or maybe Mike Munchak, but something caused Mike Munchak to say no thanks to the Cardinals, and it could be that he has an opportunity to be the Next offensive coordinator succeeding, Todd Haley. Next question comes from at 5280Josh. Why don't organizations take more chances on young collegiate coaches? That's a great question. And we haven't seen a whole lot of college coaches being hired as NFL head coaches in recent years. Chip Kelly was a big splash, big deal. It's now been five years since he was hired by the Philadelphia Eagles, my God, it's been that long. There weren't even any college coaches mentioned this year other than Matt Rule of Baylor. He had an interview with the Indianapolis Colts for their head coaching job. I don't know why it isn't happening. I don't know why David Shaw's name doesn't come up. Kevin Sumlin used to be in the mix for an NFL job, and then he got fired by Texas A&M. See, that's why when the window's open, you better jump through it because the window's going to close eventually. If you can make the planets line up in a way that you're winning football games and people are giving you attention for what would be a bump up to the NFL, you better take it because you never know when that window is going to close. And for whatever reason, the NFL owners 
gravitate toward people with NFL experience. But I'd rather have a guy with head coaching experience than a guy who's an NFL coordinator or position coach who doesn't have that head coaching experience because I think that it's it's a much bigger job and some of these guys can do it and some of them can't. And I'd rather have a guy who's had experience coaching an NFL team. Now, I'm very conservative when it comes to those kinds of decisions. But the way the Bears are rolling the dice on a Matt Nagy, it may come up craps if craps is bad. Sometimes craps is bad and sometimes craps is good. The bad craps. The Rams rolled the dice on Sean McVay and it worked out. Came up good craps. I, I would I would tend to go with something that would have a greater chance of success. And I think the greater chance. Now you may not have a high level of success because you may not trip into the next Bill Belichick or the next great offensive mind which Sean McVay seems to be, but I'd be more inclined to go with somebody who has coaching experience because there's a chance the wheels could come off if you're dealing with someone who hasn't had that kind of experience. All right, the next question from, I believe, at A-Bomb, if I can find it. Scrolling, scrolling. Boy, I was doing all right until that one. Hmm. Oh, this one... (laughs) Does Taco Bill still do funny Photoshop pictures somewhere? I don't know if he does, and I appreciate anyone who remembers Taco Bill. That was the last few years of PFT before the NBC partnership, and what happened was once partnered with NBC, NBC said, look, one of the things we can't do, we can't do the altered photos anymore because we have a photo license with Getty and the AP, and I think both had made it clear that that they were putting us on their radar screen. And I, look, I think it's fair use. I didn't want to get into a whole thing about it. That was one of the terms NBC asked for that we can't do it anymore. And I said, okay, I think technically we could have done it. And I don't think Getty or the AP were going to show up and shut us down from doing it. If we had continued to do it on the old PFT, the wild West PFT, but that's what happened there. That, that we, we had to make very few concessions when we joined NBC, that was how I tried to scare them off. When the first conversation came nearly nine years ago this month, the call from Rick Cordella, whose career has since taken off at NBC, notwithstanding the fact that he's responsible for bringing PFT under the the big top, I I said, look, we're wasting our time. If NBC is ever going to try to tell me what to say, how to say it, what to write, how to write it, I need to have full editorial control over everything we do. And I thought he was going to say, well, obviously that's not going to work. We're a large company. We can't give that kind of power to some schmo who's in his mother's basement in West Virginia. But when he said, oh, we got no problem with that, I'm like, oh, great. Now i got to come up with another way to scare this guy off. And I tried. I mean, it really wasn't until we had some serious technical problems during free agency in the draft and NBC bailed us out by giving us some temporary space that I said, you know what, we, we got to do this deal. We, 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 we're not going to be able to technologically keep up with all the traffic without spending a giant pile of money. So NBC already had the infrastructure in place, and, and uh, that worked out. How did I get down that rabbit hole? Oh, the Taco Bell pictures. So one of the things they asked for. We weren't allowed to embed YouTube videos anymore, although I think that's gone away to the extent that the YouTube videos are like licensed YouTube videos. At the time, though, it was all copyright infringement, and NBC was sensitive to that. And I said, fine, we will run links to it. We won't embed the video, and we'll, we'll quit doctoring photos. And other than that, everything has been great. I mean, nine years in, we've never had a major problem. And uh, it, it's an important relationship to us, obviously. 
and uh, value it very much. It changed my life in many ways, and it's given us an opportunity, I think, to serve the audience even more effectively. At Sean Alvashire, after Howie Roseman fleeced Rick Spielman in the Sam Bradford trade, who would have guessed 18 months later that Philadelphia and Minnesota would square off in the NFC title game and the quarterbacks would be Nick Foles and Case Keenum? I don't know if that's a question. It's got a question mark on it. And I don't know that the Vikings got fleeced. Look, the Vikings were in a tough spot. Teddy Bridgewater was done, and Sean Hill was the backup, and they needed another quarterback. And they called around, and I I think that they were going to get fleeced no matter what they did. I think A.J. McCarron at one point was a consideration. They would have gotten fleeced for him. Look, you have a desperate team that is trying to do something to salvage a season that had every indication that it was potentially going to be special. And they started the year with with five straight wins. Their first loss came in Philadelphia. And the irony is Sam Bradford made it through the whole season last year, and he got banged around nonstop, made it through one game this year, apparently healthy two days later, limited in practice with a knee injury. I remember I wrote about it, and people were like, oh, fake news. Oh, you're making something out of nothing. Clickbait, clickbait, fake news. Screw you, Florio. And then Bradford was screwed. He played a little bit in week five, and he hasn't played since then. And I Look, you heard Jeff Fisher say earlier that he wouldn't have a leash on Case Keenum. I think a healthy Sam Bradford is better than a healthy Case Keenum. And I'm not saying you start Keenum, or I mean Bradford. I mean Bradford. But your season's on the line. If Keenum throws up a couple of those medicine balls, like the one he threw up in the second half of the Saints game, hey, Sam, get your helmet. Or you're down two scores in the second half, hey, Sam, get your helmet. At some point, it's got to be, hey, Sam, get your helmet. That's the one flaw that the Vikings had in the 98 NFC title game. There was a point in the second half where Denny Green should have flipped from Randall Cunningham back to Brad Johnson. There was just a sense that it was time to go back to Brad Johnson, and he didn't. Now, would it have been any different? I don't know. But you need to know when to make that call. And it's amazing that it never happened for Teddy Bridgewater being the guy who went in And now we're at the point where it may be Sam Bradford. All right, a couple more questions, and then we'll wrap this thing up. At Black88 Elite, top three teams that would need Drew Brees' services besides New Orleans. I'm fascinated by where this may go because Brees is saying he wants to stay with the Saints. He's not completely slamming the door on going elsewhere. He said he plans to not entertain offers in free agency. The question is, really, and he hasn't said this, but as a practical matter, what are the Saints willing to pay him? Because if the Saints offer him something far less than what someone else is willing to offer, and even though he's not supposed to know, he'll know. His agent will know. His agent probably already knows. I think the Broncos, who would benefit significantly from having the kind of leadership that Breeze can bring to a locker room, the kind of accountability he can bring to an organization where they need it on both sides of the ball, a guy who can pull everyone together the way Peyton Manning did, I'd be at the front of the line if I was the Broncos. The Cardinals need a quarterback. I'd be fascinated by what Drew Brees could do in Arizona. And also, if I'm the Vikings and I don't win the Super Bowl or don't even make it, either way, I look at Case Keenum under the franchise tag, $23 million. How much would it take to get Drew Brees? And if I want to finish the job, do I do the Brett Favre dance again with Brees for the same financial investment that it would take For Keenum, because there's a chance with the benefit of a full offseason to study Keenum, defenses aren't going to be able or are going to be able to figure him out. And he's not going to be able to do next year what he did this year. 
especially if Pat Shermer's leaving, and by all appearances he is. That's a tough call for Rick Spielman and Mike Zimmer to make. But if you're looking at $23 million for a guy who got you close but didn't get you over the hump in the year where it was all lined up to get over the hump, Aaron Rodgers out, a lot of injuries. I mean, the Patriots are still the Patriots, but you're going to have to deal with the Patriots no matter who your quarterback is. Who would you rather put on the field in a one-game winner-take-all against the Patriots, Case Keenum or Drew Brees, right now? The problem is Drew Brees isn't your long-term answer. You need to develop somebody else. But if you want to go all in and try to win the Super Bowl next year if you're Minnesota, I hate to say it, but but if, if Keenum's commanding franchise tag money and Brees is in that same ballpark for one year, Brees may be the better option. At Paul PJ5, which fan base deserves their first Super Bowl win more, the Eagles, the Vikings, or the Jaguars? Look, I think it's the Vikings because of everything that they've gone through over the past 50 years. Four Super Bowl appearances, four Super Bowl losses, uh, and the heartbreaking moments short of the Super Bowl, the Hail Mary game from 75, the 87 NFC Championship game where the Vikings had upended two of the best teams in the NFL that season, the Saints and the 49ers. It was the strike-shortened season. The win over the 49ers on the road was one of the great postseason upsets of all time. Darren Nelson dropped the touchdown pass. I don't know that he dropped it. It was close. They had a chance. It was Darren Nelson at the goal line. Could have forced overtime against Washington in 87, the 98 NFC Championship game. The 2009 debacle in New Orleans. This is not Detroit. Brett Favre rolling right, throwing left. Tracy Porter picks it off to overtime. They go. The Vikings so badly outplayed the Saints that day, but the Saints outscored the Vikings. And then the Blair Walsh miss in that epic return outdoors by the Vikings in the last game they played at the University of Minnesota Stadium. I just think that that the fan base has been teased enough and heartbroken enough over the years. I mean, look, every team deserves to win a Super Bowl at some point. The Jaguars haven't even gotten there yet. Maybe the right outcome is Vikings-Jaguars, so the Jaguars can finally get there, and the Vikings can finally win one, and uh, that would exercise a lot of demons in Minnesota. And at one point, it looked like it was going to be the ultimate, potentially the ultimate redemption tour for the Vikings. Saints to make up for the 2009 NFC Championship game. Falcons to make up for the 98 NFC Championship game. And Steelers to make up for Super Bowl IX. But obviously now it's new territory for the Vikings, although they have lost to the Eagles in the postseason multiple times. I don't think the Vikings have ever beaten the Eagles in the postseason, but they've lost to the Eagles in the postseason on multiple occasions. One more before we wrap, if I can find it, at Stephen A. Not the Stephen A., just a Stephen A., what do you think will be the biggest departure to happen when March hits Eli Manning, Kirk Cousins, or any others? I think Kirk Cousins is going to leave Washington. I feel like the Giants are saying all the right things about Eli Manning, but what does the new coach want to do? If you bring in Pat Shermer and he says, I can deliver one of these Vikings quarterbacks, they just don't want to sit on the bench behind Eli Manning for a year or two. What do the Giants do? And you know what? Is somebody going to take a chance on Blake Bortles? If the Jaguars cut him before the start of the league year in March because he's due to make $19 million, currently guaranteed for injury only, they cut him before the start of the league year, make him a free agent, because I think they could cut him and sign him back, what would be the market for Blake Bortles if he's available to anyone who wants him? Would someone swoop in and gobble him up before the Jaguars could sign him back for less than $19 million? 
That's going to be a heck of an analysis for the Jaguars. But you know what? If they cut him and he goes somewhere else, they'll, they'll go after Kirk Cousins or Eli Manning or someone else. I mean, look, Bortles has earned more respect than what he's gotten, but as a business proposition, I think $19 million is too much for Blake Bortles. So that's going to be a very interesting analysis. And also what happens this weekend is going to be a big part of it. There's a certain point where you have to just suck it up and pay the guy $19 million. If he takes you to a Super Bowl, how do you move on from Blake Bortles? Because there's a chance he's unlocking the front end of what could be a franchise quarterback type of a career, despite the the bumps that we've seen along the way. All right, that does it for today's edition of the PFTPM podcast. There definitely will be one on Friday, a conference championship preview. Maybe tomorrow, not sure at this point. But there will be a PFT Live on Thursday and on Friday and ProFootballTalk.com around the clock every day. We are coming down on one of the most significant days on the NFL calendar. We find out the two Super Bowl teams, and we will be with you every step of the way, getting you ready for the games. We'll be posting updates during the games, and we'll have all the breakdown after the games coming up on Sunday. Thanks for some of your time. As always, we'll talk to you again soon. You can find the PFTPM podcast on Art19, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you like what you hear, and you will, subscribe for automatic downloads. Leave a rating and review. That'll help new listeners find our show and push us up the charts. Search PFTPM for your evening update from Pro Football Talk. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.